who fundamentally is to blame for the war in Ukraine? John Mearsheimer, a professor at University of Chicago, insists that the principal blame lies not with Putin, but with the West, and especially the United States. What explains this astonishing conclusion? Well, it flows from Mearsheimer's championing of a theory in international relations called realism. And lately, Mearsheimer's view has gone viral in a big way. So today we'll analyze the philosophic assumptions and consequences of this brand of realism. Welcome to New Ideal, the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. I'm Ilan Jerno, and today I'm joined by my colleague, Nikos Soterakopoulos. Hey, Nikos. Hi, Ilan. Thanks for having me. Yeah, good to have you. Why don't we just jump in and, and talk a bit more about why we're focusing on realism. It's something few people outside of academia or words in international relations might have encountered. So you, before we went live, you were telling me about you were looking at this particular video from Mearsheimer. Just give us a sense for how his view has kind of exploded. Yes. So this is a, a video that most of you might have seen on your YouTube suggestions. If you've put anything related to Ukraine, it's called Why is Ukraine the West Fault? And it's this lecture by John Mearsheimer, and it has 26 million views. And the reason it has these views is, first of all, the, the title, but also the fact that Mearsheimer is someone who is respected in the international relations community. He's a prominent realist. And the argument he's making is the following one, that what we did is we poked the bear. We triggered the worries of Russia by expanding NATO. So the idea was, look, NATO had a reason of existence while the Soviet Union was a threat. When the Soviet Union ceased to be a threat, by expanding the NATO eastwards, initially with countries like Czech Republic, and then going closer and closer to the borders of, the, of Russia. And in 2002, by NATO promising to Georgia and to Ukraine a potential future membership, this was an unacceptable threat to Russia's vital interests. So as Mir Simer puts it, Russia drew the, drew the red line. They said, no, Georgia and Ukraine is the line in the sand. So the idea is the following one. Putin is a predictable actor in the international scene. When Putin says he will do something, he will do it. Putin told us that any attempt to expand NATO to Georgia and Ukraine would create a reaction by Russia. Therefore, both the invasion in Georgia in 2008 and the crisis in Crimea, the annexation of Crimea in 2014, and the war in Ukraine in 2022 were predictable. And since they were predictable, the West is to blame. The West knew that Putin would not allow it. The, the West had this reckless policy of expanding NATO to Ukraine, and therefore the West is to blame. So this, uh, so a, a claim that has given credibility to this view, to Mir Samir's view, is that with what we call realism in international relations, you can predict what will happen because it is not based on wishes. It is not based on ideals as the opposite view, the so-called liberalist or idealist view, which we'll discuss later. But with realism, you know that the states will act to maximize their power, will make sure that their vital interests of survival qua state are their major concern, and therefore we could predict Russia's aggressiveness towards Ukraine. Yeah, and I, just to underline what you said about the video in particular, the, the one you mentioned, to put the put in a wider context, this is the video that he of a talk that he gave in 2015, so this has been around for a long time, and it didn't have 26 million views up until the eruption of this war. So this really catapulted him to a kind of public profile that I don't think he had. He was prominent before. And one thing I noticed, just to add some color to this, I was researching Mearsheimer's presence online, and he's done a lot of interviews lately defending himself. And he went on a, a Chinese TV program to articulate his view for a, a, a sort of a news uh, interview. And that interview has several hundred, several thousand views. And then somebody found another interview of him 
and bootlegged it and posted it to YouTube and that got half a million views. So there's clearly an appetite of people looking for, whoa, what is he saying? What's going on? And you can't take all of the reaction to be agreement, but there's certainly strong appetite for what he's talking about. And, and the other thing I would say is that the talk he gave uh, in 2015 is based on an article, a very notorious article that he published in a prestigious uh, magazine or journal called Foreign Affairs that lays out his argument in detail for why the 2014 crisis, if people remember when Russia went into parts of uh, Ukraine, annexed uh, Crimea and uh, parts of Eastern Ukraine, that was the, the West's fault as well. So he, he's been beating this drum for a long time and now he's in the limelight with a lot of people some people nodding and some people scratching their heads. So I think let's let's try to unpack a bit. So you gave a summary of his argument. I think it's good to try to unpack what is this school of thought, what how do we, how to think about it, and then talk a bit about some of the implications of it as well. So Nikos, do you want to say so, something a bit about so what is this realism? You mentioned it in contrast to another view. Yeah, so around the turn of the 20th century, so we are after the era of the Enlightenment, the, NATO st the nation states have come along, and the idea was that war is a, is, is a remnant of the past, that war had to do with the feudal period, and now with the ideas around individual rights, universal human rights, war would be a thing of the past. And even after the First World War, the idea was that war has to do with the former empires, but now that we're all enlightened and we understand that we have common interest as human beings and that we're all democracies so the governments are accountable to people, the war will eclipse. This was the liberal school of thought, the liberal school of international relations, which says that through international cooperation, through uh, transnational institutions, like the League of Nations after World War, the First World War, war will still be a thing of the past. Realism rises as a reaction to this theory. Realism says, look, war is the, the, the constant in human history. And war is here to stay. The only way not to have war is not to wish it away and say we're all brothers. The only way to not have war is through deterrence, through being so strong that your opponent will he will make sure that they will not mess up with you. And also through the balance of power. So you could say that the realist school of international relations that says that power is the currency in, uh, in the anarchic environment of uh, states competing with each other, you could say that these ideas have been around for long. Uh, Thucydides, the famous Greek historian, in his analysis of the Peloponnesian War, he he, he approaches it from, let's say, a realist point of view. So a realist will tell you, look, what we are doing is we are describing what is happening out there. We don't base our analysis on wishes or on wishful thinking. We base it on facts. Power is the currency and you cannot wish this away. And this is why, Elan, many people, and wh when I was a novice in objectivism, it's easy to say that, doesn't this sound a bit like objectivism? Things are what they are, and you have to be very strong in terms of your self-defense against aggressors, and you have to prioritize your national interest. So do you see things in common between realists and objectivists? And could someone be forgiven to say, well, isn't realism basically objectivism, uh, not miles away from objectivism when it comes to international relations? I think the, the differences are fundamental. So I, I forgive people for being mistaken or for not knowing a lot. So it's not a no penalty for, for that. But the differences are really profound. The talk of self-interest and, and being concerned with that and being fact-oriented, those are things that definitely are themes you hear from realists. I don't think that they actually know what interests are and i think it's a, this is a deep philosophic question of how to conceive of one's interest and i think the other element of it which is the claim that they're really concerned with the facts and not concerned with wishful thinking i i think there's an element of that which is plausible and appealing to people because there is in american foreign policy in particular which is the field i, I know most about there is just irrationality everywhere and a lot of wishful thinking as policy, the masquerades as policy making. So I can see the reaction to, well, no, well, let's just really look at the world as it is. The, let's talk a bit about 
a couple of aspects of realism and then we can contrast to see in what deep ways it really is different from objectivism. Now, to, just to clarify, objectivism is a, is a philosophic system. It's not a theory in international relations. So it's much broader than realism in international relations. What I'm referring to is applying objectivist ideas and principles to this field. And what would that look like? And how does that compare and, and differ from realism? So they're not exactly commensurate as things to, to look at, but there's, there's ways to, to put them side by side. So number one, the, the realists look at the world and they see states. And in, in this conversation, we're really just focusing on Mearsheimer's brand. There's a whole school and many different realists and they disagree, but we're just looking at Mearsheimer's view. And they look at states and they see them and they don't care about what kind of state it is. So whether it's Nazi Germany, whether it's Winston Churchill's uh, Britain or today's United States or France 10 years ago, it doesn't matter what the co internal composition, ideas, institutions, values of the, of the country are. Those are irrelevant. They're, they don't really pay attention to that. Yeah, that's true, they're different, but they're not causally important to the realists. And the realist view is, as you were summarizing earlier, states care about survival in a, in a world where there's no superior power to come in and say, oh, you know, you can't do this. There's a, like a police enforcement mechanism. There isn't. They, they view it as, which I think is true, there, there isn't some super government above states to say, do this, don't do that. <clears throat> so they view the, the, what they call an anarchic system as one in which states have to help themselves. And they, their primary driving goal is survival in this state of war against all, potential war at every step. And so that when they talk about maximizing power or, or gaining power and, and balancing against other threats or potential threats, what they're primarily talking about is measured in economic terms, population size, and therefore military strength. And these are things you can measure. These are hard things, right? So this is part of the appeal that you get numbers, you get tables, you can do calculations. And these are important things to do. You need to know the balance of military strength and so forth. But I think part of the mistake is thinking that that's all there is to look at. And let's take the other piece, the idea that these are states and that their self-interest is easily read off as exclusively defined in terms of survival and getting uh, dominance over others so that they aren't threatened. One way to think of what the realist is describing is the way that mafia uh, factions within a mafia operate. Like I'm, you're, you're gonna have east side of town, I'm gonna have the west side of town, but I don't want you to get too strong because maybe you'll muscle in on my territory. So I do a few things to push you out of the way. I, I hit some of your people, I, I steal some of your, your, your uh, racket, and we have this kind of constant tug of who's going to dominate because we don't want either, I don't want to be subjugated, you don't want to be subjugated, and we're, it's totally anarchic, we're disregarding the law. And this mentality of it's brute force that makes the difference here. That's just, I mean, I'm not parodying this, I'm trying to distill it into that's the way they think of interests. But that's not at all a valid way of thinking of one's interests or a nation's interests. I don't think that exhausts or even comes close to an accurate picture of what a nation's interests are. And I think there's a philosophic issue to look at there. But so just to summarize this point, and we can dig in a bit more. So the realist view of states is their actual character is irrelevant causally. They're like billiard balls. You put them in certain conditions and they'll react in predictable ways doesn't matter what's inside the billiard ball, doesn't matter what color or, or, or pattern it has, it's a billiard ball. So Putin's Russia would react one way and you put uh, Macron's France in the same condition, they react the same way. And then they only vary in size or strength. That, that's the only thing that matters to them. And this, so, so that's sort of the picture that realism brings. And there's a lot of points that, we, that I've already hinted at that I think are sharp points of difference. So, let me just name a few and then we can dig into them. One is, it is, <laughs> I want to say it's crazy. It's not crazy. It, it, there's something deeply wrong with disregarding the character of regimes, of states. Like what makes them tick? What are their operating principles? What institutions they have? How do they have, what, what is the composition of the government? What is its aims? How does it operate? Does it protect freedoms? Does it not protect? That is a fundamental question in political thought, political philosophy. 
And to drop that whole context and say, yeah, we don't care about that. It's just about the systemic dynamics of power. That's like ignoring the, um, the, sort of the essential nature of what you're dealing with. Um, so that's a, that's a major, major point of uh, uh, differentiation. It, it would be like uh, if you and I were trying to sort out who we're going to be friends with. And we just said, well, it's a human being. It's the right height. And it's not going to, so I can be friends with him, right? So that's the essential compatibility versus the character of the person you're trying to deal with. Is this is the person who's going to bring value to your life or not? So, so there's that sort of deep issue of what is in your interest. Uh, and I, I think there's more to say, but let, let me uh, hand it back to you and, and just tell me what aspects you think people yeah, might so find more plausible as points of similarity. So, and the, the thing that would find mostly plausible is also that realism has a degree of, predict, of predicting the future. So, for example, they would say, look, if you let uh, Hitler become too powerful, if you let Germany, for example, become too powerful, Germany will always pose a geopolitical threat. And indeed, we see in history, German has been posing a geopolitical threat to its, to its neighbors. Or if we take the case of Russia, so many realists, will claim that whether it's called Soviet uh, Tsarist Russia or Soviet Union or post-Soviet Russia, they, their leaders always behave in a predictable, similar way, having aspirations to uh, keep, uh, let's say, the West at uh, arm's length and also have access, let's say, to, to, the, to the hot seas and uh, to the to warm waters. So they point out some constants. They point down some, uh, some basic interests that these states have. And yet, sometimes they, it looks like they're cherry picking. Because take the example, for example, that says that Stalin and uh, any Russian leader more or less have a similar foreign policy. Taking a look at history, we see that this is not the case. For example, Stalin, a committed communist, quite often puts, leaves aside the quote uh, national interest in order to promote uh, the communist revolution abroad. For example, in the 30s, he gives up uh, the possibility to get some loans that were desperately needed for the Soviet government because from the from the British government because he wanted to support the British coal miners. So this idea that any regime, irrespective of ideas, will act in the same way is empirically not true. Or we can see other regimes. We can see, for example, Germany. Germany under a national socialist has behaves in a completely different way than a Germany under Angela Merkel, for example. And any other claim would be historical, uh, a clumsy historical thing that says Germans always, uh, always uh, act the same. And at the end of the day, Elan, isn't this a dismissal of the role of ideas? Isn't this almost a deterministic argument? An argument that says that geography, or as, it, as it's called in, in IR, geopolitics is destiny. It takes away the role of ideas and it takes, the, it takes away the role of human volition. Or let me give another example. Lenin's uh, Brest-Litovsk peace. So to, to put it simply, to save the revolution after 1917, he gives up tremendous amounts of lands to Germany. Does this make sense? geopolitically, and is this how you'd expect a leader of Russia to act? No, but this is how you'd expect a communist to act. So I think this is a weak point in, uh, in realism, this deterministic element. So yes, it sounds reasonable to say that, of course, the states will act, uh, quote, uh, reasonably, but what, quote, reasonably means is different if you're a communist and different if you are someone who has uh, other aspirations rather than uh, world, uh, the, the, the world the domination of the revolution. Yeah, I think you're getting at something really important, which is if I were to summarize what is objectivism bringing to this conversation, there's a lot been one important piece of it is it's crucial to Think about the role of ideas, philosophic ideas, political ideas as shaping a country, shaping the direction its leadership is taking. And knowing that it doesn't give you 
physics level predictability, but it gives you a kind of predictability that is important. So if the Taliban take over Afghanistan, there's a reason to think logically that they're going to bring back the hijab. In fact, they've done that. So all the talk we heard a few months ago about them softening is, is BS. So there's, if you understand the ideas that animate a certain group or political phenomenon, you can expect certain things. And so it's not a, a, a deterministic prediction. It's a prediction based on human uh, volition and the, the role of ideas. So that's one element. And I think that's important because we can come back to the idea of predictions and what the realists say and don't and succeed and don't succeed. The other, another important uh, contribution that objectivism makes to thinking about international relations and foreign policy in particular is just as in your own life, Ayn Rand argues, you need to use your mind. You need to judge things, evaluate them rationally. You need to, and, and the virtue of justice is central to her ethics. And this is the idea of bringing rational evaluation and according to rational standards in your engagement with other people and your decisions about your life and how to, to navigate those. Everything that's true about the individual is even more important or just as important as at the level of making policy for a country with respect to other countries in the world. So if you are taking objectivism and applying ideas from it to international relations and foreign policy, one of the critical things you would have to do is reaching objective moral judgments of other regimes, which is directly, and that takes a lot of work. It's not easy and it's certainly not obvious and they're difficult cases in order so that you can best achieve your goals, which is in the objectivist conception of political thought, it's protecting the individual rights of the people in the country that you're uh, in the United States or whichever country is following these principles. So that's the goal of the government. And the means by one important means it does that in foreign policy is use rationality and, and use the principle of justice to figure out who's a friend, who's an enemy, what's the, you know, all everything in between and that's exactly what the realist says is unimportant. They say, why are you getting hung up on this whole, the whole idea of moral judgment in foreign policy would be alien to them. And there's an interesting quote in one of the statements from Mearsheimer recently, just to bring it back to the, the initial trigger for the conversation. He was interviewed by the New Yorker and the New Yorker journalist is sort of sympathetic, sort of interested, a little bit taken aback that anyone could have this view, but he's asking him some, some interesting questions and pointed questions. And one of the things that Mearsheimer says in response is, look, yeah, I know there's moral considerations in foreign policy. They're always there. And sometimes they line up with what is so-called in our quote, strategic interests, what the realists think of as their, our interests, conceived of exclusively in the sort of material slash power dynamic. But sometimes they don't line up. And when push comes to shove, what do we follow? We don't follow morality. That's not, a that's not a relevant causal uh, consideration. We follow our so-called strategic interests. So it's, I would say it's deliberately dropping any concern about both ideas, as you put it, what animates political thought and, and leadership. And even more deeply, it drops the whole conception of morality as defining, as a means to succeeding in, in life and in policy. So it's, and I, I think the best characterization of this is it's amoral. It's not about doing the wrong thing. It's just, we're not concerned. We don't care about morality. It's just an obstacle. What we think of as our interest is defined in terms of who has more tanks, who has more population, who has more dollars. And if we can figure out the, the tables, then we can decide, oh, we have to go to war against them. And it literally is the view that war is just an instrument. It's not something you do only in self-defense. It's something that you do in order to dominate others. So it's, it re and I, when I liken this to the mafia or to a gang, it really is this mentality of might makes right. And the people who don't have strength, they just have to suffer. I mean, there's a quote that you shared with me earlier, which is a, sort of the, the timeless encapsulation. Do you, do you want to put it on the table? Yes. Yeah, so this is the quote from uh, Thukydides. Uh, and when he describes the dialogue between the Athenians and the inhabitants of the island of Milos. So Athenia, Athens imagine it as the imperial power of the time, the superpower of the time. Milos is a very small argument which eventually was destroyed by Athens. And the Athenians say, quote, the strong do what they can't and the weak suffer what they must. 
So the Athenians are basically telling to the, to the inhabitants of Milos, you have to accept that. This is what the situation is. There is no, there is no point to do that. So they say, we understand the moral thing for you would be to resist, but resistance would be futile. But let me ask you something here, Elan. Wouldn't we agree with the fact that no one should be a martyr? Because what is Mersheimer's claim when it comes to Ukraine? He says that the mistake that the West is doing now is that we help Ukraine. And by helping Ukraine, we make sure that this war goes on forever. And this war going on forever means that Ukraine is going to be destroyed. So does he have a claim on that? Does he have a point? I want to I want to deal with that question, but I, before we get to that, I, I want to just take one step back because we we we've raised the issue of his analysis of how the West is to blame for Ukraine, and I just want to address that briefly, and we can talk more about it, and then we can come to what Ukraine should be doing because I think that the and my guess is that's probably what's driving the virality of his video and all these TV interviews that he's doing and why he's getting so much attention. So. I don't think Mearsheimer is right at all in terms of his account of what who's to blame. I think fundamentally it's Putin who's to blame. And as the aggressor, Putin's regime is fundamentally responsible for all the deaths on both sides. I think that is, is the appropriate evaluation here, including all the, the collateral damage, economic and, and uh, cultural damage, and all the people displaced. I think it's Putin who's actually to blame. Then take the part that Mearsheimer is putting forward, which is, well, if you hadn't in expanded NATO or promised to expand NATO, if you hadn't to, to Ukraine, uh, including membership, uh, including them as members, if you hadn't expanded the EU, none of this would happen. Putin would be not threatened. I don't. I, I have a lot of problems with the way NATO expansion was handled. I think it's, we've talked about this in another podcast. If people want to look it up. Uh, I think. And I also have a lot of concerns about what NATO's purpose is today, post-Cold War, post the fall of the Soviet Union. So I'm not here to, to justify pay, NATO decisions or, or all of that. I think there were mistakes that were done, but I don't think it's the right analysis to say that Putin is just your average leader who's just feeling threatened because this massive military alliance is on his doorstep. And what do you expect him to do? Well, of course, he's going to go into Ukraine. I think that is, is, is superficial and it ignores the fact that Putin is a dictator who forces his people into war, who don't, people don't want to fight, they're, a lot of them are conscripts, and he has said a lot of things and demonstrated, there's a lot of demonstrated uh, uh, things to look at that Putin has a certain vision of what he thinks is true and what needs to happen, which is he has a view that Ukraine isn't a real country and it, there's this whole thing about mother Russia and he's uniting it back together with one people where just being divided artificially. There, there's evidence to think that he has imperialistic aspirations. He mourns the loss of the Soviet Union. And this is someone who is a, a KGB officer in the Soviet Union. This is not an incidental fact. It's, it's important for understanding who he is. So you, what you have is an authoritarian, dictatorial, quasi-fascist leader who's got a war machine that he's willing to put forward, that's a central fact you have to account for. You can't just treat it like, well, he's one billiard ball of a certain size and Boris Johnson's United Kingdom is just another billiard ball. If you put Boris Johnson in that position, of course, he's, gonna, he's not going to react the same way. We know that because there's certain things that Boris Johnson believes and ideas he lives by. I'm not a fan of Boris Johnson, but the, you, there's a difference between that kind of leader versus Putin. And that is what the realist analysis completely ignores. And it, it, it tells us this fairy tale that we could deal with Putin if only we weren't the ones advancing our values, right? And that's part of what I think is a, a one layer or two layers below this whole analysis, which is it, there's a, it's foolish for us to be advancing the idea that or supporting Ukraine's aspirations to be a quote, liberal democracy, which is the way Mearsheimer describes it. And I think he's very, dismissive of that. That's part of what he's a reaction to. So to me, he gets, a, he gets a lot wrong about Ukraine. He gets a fundamental moral issue wrong. And it's not an accident. It's, it's a direct result of having this realist intellectual framework that tells you, don't look at the moral ideas. Don't look at, the, at any kind of moral evaluation of the actors involved. Just look at these certain dynamics. And then you can read off as if you were a scientist, 
this is what's going to happen. And then, and, and, and interestingly, he doesn't have, he, he's not comfortable with what Putin is doing, but he certainly doesn't have the same kind of uh, um, evaluation of Putin as he has of the US. He really has it in for the US, which is an interesting dynamic that occurs when you're an amoralist. Like when you move away from moral judgment, it's corrupting. And it leads you to have less sympathy for the good and more sympathy for, for the aggressor. Okay, so I, I sort of wanted to raise that and just put it to one side, and then we can go to your question if you want to go back to sort of what is Ukraine martyring itself, and, or did you want to go to a different? Well, also, one comment because we also need to question how exactly is NATO threatening Russia? Because we shouldn't buy this so cheaply that, uh, oh, yeah, by NATO going to Ukraine, this is a threat to Russia. How exactly? Is NATO going to attack Russia via infantry? Therefore, the fact that it's going to be in Ukraine makes a difference. I mean, there are already missiles that could reach Russia. So what? how exactly would the expansion of NATO be a, quote, threat to Russia? I mean, we could say it could be a threat to Putin in terms of uh, his narrative of a strong uh, Russia, which is going to have a, a huge uh, sphere of influence around it or a, quote, buffer zone. But why isn't a realist? who understand supposedly military strategy and all that stuff, why do they fall in this trap to buy this argument that uh, NATO is a, quote, threat? How exactly is, is, uh, is NATO expanding to Ukraine a threat to Russia? It, you know, to give it the best interpretation, I think it would be, we'll add up all the military strength of all the members of NATO, treat them as a unit, and well, that's a lot of military strength and that's on your border. So you obviously, if you're just a power seeking, survival seeking regime, you would feel threatened because all you care about is the balance of who has more power, who might displace me, who might come in and, and cause me harm. And again, notice what's happening. It's, is there any consideration for who's in NATO and what does NATO actually look like? My impression, the, the way I think of NATO is I don't know if people remember what the Keystone cops look like, but NATO is just clueless. It's, it's not, it doesn't have a lot of unity. Uh, for a long time, people have been complaining that most of the membership members of NATO have been not carrying their weight economically in terms of how much they're supposed to invest in their military as a percentage of GDP. This was one of the things Donald Trump was complaining about. They're all freeloading on the US, which the, so the US is the, the main member and it has the largest military uh, within NATO. So if you have a conception of NATO that is, I think, accurate to the facts, NATO, it would be surprising to me if any of the members of NATO have any desire to, to uh, attack Russia, to, to be aggressive towards Russia, mainly because the, the kind of countries that are in NATO are not the kind of countries that have any interest in war. And that they would have to round up a whole bunch of, every, a whole bunch of other members and, and make this a whole... Uh, uh, concerted effort. Now, this just it, it, when you put it in those terms, it starts to get into the point of fantasy. Like, how many times has NATO actually done anything like this? There was the, the post 9-11 period, which is, I think, a different context. Uh, and then there's things to say about the Balkans. But I don't think that we're looking at the fact if we're treating NATO as, well, look at all the, the manpower they have, look at all the military. Obviously, Putin's feeling threatened. I think the, the better analysis would be what can we say philosophically about the, the dynamics of a dictatorship, the mentality of a dictator, and what does that tell you about, you don't need realism to tell you that. You, you need philosophical uh, insight, which I think part of what Ayn Rand is really good at is she has a view of what this mentality is. And it is really desperately uncertain and insecure. And I think this is typical of dictators. Like They didn't get there the right way morally, and they know that they're in the wrong. They're always looking for moral cover and they're, they're right to feel insecure. Like who's going to be the, the next person to try to overthrow me. And so there's all kinds of dynamics in a, in a dictatorial regime that lead the lead, the, the person who gets to the top of it, there's a certain reason they got there and there's a certain reason they're able to stay in power. And that's because of brutality and, and their ability to, to uh, dominate people. That's a crucial piece of data for thinking about what can we say about what Putin might do? Like, look at the way he's treating his own people. Like, you can't criticize the special military operation in Russia. I put air quotes around that. He doesn't want to call it a war. And then there's 15-year penalty if you criticize the government. And he's been cracking down on free speech, such as there was, for, for a long time. So, okay, this is all, all of this is clues to thinking about 
what kind of regime Russia is, what kind of leader he is. And I don't think it's still enough to say, well, NATO expansion was a trigger, but you can think, you can put yourself in, in Putin's shoes and say, well, I'm always, <laughs> I don't want to lose power, so I'll do whatever I have to do to not lose power. And, and this is a pretext that lets him say, well, I want to go after Ukraine, and this is, I'm going to do it now before they join NATO rather than after. Um, so, I mean, there's a and lot more to say on that. Do you want to go back to that other issue? Or? Yeah, because the, it's related to this. So, the re, so some realists now say, look, how can this war end? Putin cannot lose face. Therefore, we have to give him something. Otherwise, the war cannot end. Or another line towards the same argumentation. We shouldn't keep helping Ukraine because by keeping helping Ukraine, we in a way add up to the demise of Ukraine because there's no chance the Russians are going to give up. There's no chance Russians are going to have such a humiliating defeat. Or even worse, what is Russia going to do if they're facing a humiliating defeat? They might use, who knows, they might use tactical nukes, if not something even worse. So this is why we should not help Ukraine and we should leave them alone. This is the so-called realist approach, or some realists have this. And the immorality of this is very, very eminent. It's saying, who cares about the, the, the Ukraine? about uh, Putin's aggressiveness being uh, sanctioned, we should make sure that he gets what he needs because he's going to win at the end. But let me return to the previous question, Elan. If indeed we'd expect that Russia would win, wouldn't the realists have a point in saying, well, we shouldn't expect Ukrainians to be martyrs, therefore we should stop supporting them? So could it? is there a point that says that we know that the Russians are the powerful, therefore, at some point, they're probably going to win. Therefore, why don't we recognize it already and give Putin what he wants and we go on with our life? There's two things I would say. One, I don't know that it's, we can say with confidence that Ukraine isn't going to survive this. The Russians have, one of the surprising things to me and to a lot of people, I think, looking at this is how badly the Russians have been dealing with this war. They have undoubtedly the military's advantage, and yet they're struggling in many places. And you know, there's reason to think that Putin thought this would be an easy conquest, and it hasn't been. So it's not at all clear to me that this is going to go their way. Uh, so this, that's one thing. So it's not clear to me that that is it's going to turn out, it might be a grinding war, it might drag on for a long time, I could see that being true. But to your point, I think this is the really important point, which is, what is the moral assessment of this situation? And it's a difficult assessment, right? It's, Ukraine is certainly, it's a better country than Russia, it has a lot of flaws and problems. It's not the case that it's America's interest to go and fight for Ukraine. That's not true. You don't have, it's, it's not true that it's in America's interest. Is it in America's interest to see Ukraine succeed and become a freer country, which is, I think, the aspiration of the best among Ukrainians? I think that is true. And is it in our interest that more countries move in that direction and away from Russia's orbit? Yes, I think that is true. And I, I, I'm in favor of supporting Ukraine as much as we can. I do think there is something about, there, there's a point at which what you give in support becomes more than support because you're part of the, the operation. So I think you have to think about what kind of support is appropriate to give. And is there a risk that this becomes a worse war? Now, my view is that it, it's better if Putin win, if, if Putin is made to lose and humiliated and, and, and driven back because the amoralist account, which says, "Well, screw it," you know, we, we the Ukrainians are not going to win. Let, let you let him have Ukraine. Let him have whatever he, he can take. It's short-sighted, you know, to be very charitable, and it's wrong because you don't want to. You don't. It, it's just incredibly ahistorical to think, "Well, if you just give him this one piece of territory, what could go wrong with that?" I mean. It's a better outcome than fighting. And I don't think that's true. And, and you, you know history of Europe better than I do. And you can point to examples where this is just the case. That appeasement is not a strategy that, that you can condone because it is destructive. And 
I, I'm not a Ukrainian. I'm not in the position of having to fight for Ukraine. But I can understand people saying, I'd rather fight and we might not win, but we're fighting because we don't want to live under whatever Putin's going to bring here. That's bad for us. We don't want that. And you can't argue with that. I think that's a legitimate position for them to take. And I think it's, there's good reason to support them. Uh, so I think that that's sort of the moral calculus here that's important uh, in thinking about this. I, I, I mean, I'll put a bookmark on this because I think this is something worth thinking more about. And I don't know if we'll get to it in this conversation, but the point you raise, which is at a certain point, doesn't this lead Putin to want to do more and go after other countries, maybe come after the countries supporting the earth? I think there's reason to worry about something like that. I don't know that that's a realistic uh, scenario, given the struggles he has just in Ukraine and that there are people who don't like it within Russia. And does he really want to upset the Russian people? Notice, as a couple of days ago, he gave a speech on Victory Day, which was sort of a secular holiday in, in Russia. I think there's a reason to expect him to blow the trumpets and say, we're going to hammer these people, they're terrible. He did a bit of that, but it wasn't like, yeah, let's rally everyone and, 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 and turn this into a bigger deal. And I think he was, maybe this is evidence to say, yeah, he's sensitive to really um, opposition within Russia and even within the people around him pushing against it because it's not going the way I think he would want it, obviously not the way he wanted to go. And it could be really destructive for him. So to me, that's a reason to think, no, I don't, I don't see him going after another country at the same time when he's struggling in Ukraine. I, I think it's even less reason to think he's going to escalate against the countries that are supporting Ukraine. Uh, the worry I have is that all of the sanctions that are now in place and that have been put in place and that I think are, are defensible and, and right, that they won't last. They start eroding and, and, and the impact that they have wanes and then Russia gets to a stronger position and then it, it's able to destroy Ukraine or dismantle it or, or leave it as a failed state. And that would be a really bad outcome. But so to me, part of the issue is, is there enough will to keep the pressure of the sanctions and the, and the, the ostracizing and, and shunning of Russia, which I think is necessary? I don't think it's gone far enough. But I think that if that holds up, then I think there's a better chance for Ukraine to come out of this. And many people will say here, oh, so you are saying, though, that it's okay for, isn't it sacrifice that we're going to pay, for example, expensive electricity for Ukraine to win? And the answer is, no, it's not sacrifice because you have an interest in a tyrant losing. You have an interest in not having an aggressor uh, above your borders or anywhere near your borders. So it, it's, not, uh, it's not that anyone wants the Ukrainians to be, quote, martyrs. No one wants to be himself martyred in terms of, I don't know, paying high electricity, although we should ask why is it that we are energy dependent on Putin? So that's, that's a completely different, uh, different discussion. And at the end of the day, on whether we are making the Ukrainian martyrs, this takes away this argument, very popular among the, the countercultural rights in the United States. This takes away the agency from Ukrainians. We are not, quote, forcing the Ukrainians to fight. And similarly, NATO did not force anyone to join. Actually, you could say it was the opposite. NATO was very careful and not super enthusiastic in accepting these countries. So here's what I see, Elan, to, to, to wrap up my take on this topic. I see a lot of people being very, very eager to let Putin off the, off the hook. I don't want to psychologize on what Mersheimer is doing in general, but the fact that his take is so popular, it reminds me the blow back theory, Ron Paul's theory about 9-11, that we brought this to ourselves. Equally, today, it's Putin and NATO, uh, sorry, it's NATO that brought this to Ukrainians. So I'm a bit suspicious with this tendency very quickly to say it's on us and to leave Putin off the hook. A, this is a wrong analysis, So you and also it's an immoral analysis, or you could say because it's wrong, it's immoral. So it blinds you to what is actually happening and it is letting bad guys off the hook. And it's, it's, it's a question why we are so eager to, uh, to, to blame ourselves. As you said, there have been many strategic blunders by the West and by NATO, but letting Putin off the hook has nothing to do with them. And again, people who use this argument, I'm more and more suspicious 
on what are their intention or how broken their moral compass is. Now, you're raising a topic that I'm interested in. Maybe we should do another podcast about if you are as well, which is the, the views of Putin, in, uh, particularly among some people who, are, uh, who describe themselves as on the right, and the views of Viktor Orban, of a lot of people on the right. It's changed a little bit since the Ukraine war has happened in Orban's position. But the reason I raise that is there's a, there is a certain thread in our culture, at least in the United States, and I think this is true in parts of Europe, where there, there's a view that if what we like about Putin is he's against the, the woke, the woke left, and sort of he, and it's it's in disregard of what actually it would look like to stand up for positive values. Because I don't think Putin is, stands up for any positive values. I think he's essentially nihilistic. But that's that's a topic for another time. I think that sort of this this and this came up early on in the war. If you remember, uh, there were people uh, forget who they are. I think Candace Owens was one of them. Uh, a number of people, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene. I forget everyone. I don't want to blame people without remembering exactly, but there are a number of people who are prominent going up and saying, don't blame Putin. Like This is our, you know, we created this mess and sort of echoing the, the amoralist perspective that you get in full f- form in Mearsheimer. I don't know that they've ever read, read Mearsheimer, but this kind of perspective filters through the culture and you get this sort of amoralist perspective. Like, no, we're the ones, to, this is the problem we created and don't blame Putin. In fact, they like Putin. So there's a, this incentive as you're suggesting to, to make him out to be less, he's the victim. <laughs> like, why are you picking on it? Now that's faded. I mean, and obviously we, we, we heard various things and people were ashamed of what they said, but, but that was a particular view uh, at the time. I think one final point before we wrap up, I, I wanted to bring some of these threads together. And, you know, we, we haven't done a, an in-depth discussion of realism. We've just talked about Mearsheimer in particular, and the, there are other realists who would disagree with him and so forth. But I think he's a good example of a, of a mindset that it, it has self-consciously theoretical. Mearsheimer advocates for his view. I mean, part of what he does in his career is you on the other side of this issue are wrong. You didn't listen to the realists and look at what happened. That's sort of a theme in his, it comes out in his talk as well. And it's interesting because it's, it doesn't take very long to get to key philosophic issues on which realism is really, really wrong and that animate this view. So this sort of amoral perspective, this shallow and essentially materialistic view of self-interest and short range. So I think Ayn Rand has really profound things to say about what constitutes our self-interest, what it takes to think about of an individual, what it takes to think about your self-interest. And it's not even close to exhausted by the kinds of things that would occur to most people, and certainly not at a national level, the kind of things that realists would talk about. It's not just power. It can't be just power. It's deeply uh, rooted in ideals and values and things that are important and worth creating in life and worth pursuing. And that takes thought both to identify the things you want to do and then to to pursue them. And none of that is in realism. Realism is in a certain, from a certain angle, you could say it's it's a rejection of that whole conception of self-interest. And then one final point on the, not to be glib, but the the appropriation of the term realism, it's not really accurate because they're not really concerned with looking at all the facts. I think if you were, you wouldn't disregard ideas and you wouldn't disregard morality as part of what is true and, and important in life. And that's essential to what I think realism is about. It's, it's blinkered. And it, as a result of that, it leads you to, to the kinds of argue, arguments that Mearsheimer makes, which is give Putin what he wants, make Ukraine neutral, stop supporting them, and in fact, go further. Let's make Putin our friend because we have bigger fish to fry. And that kind of thinking is... I mean, there are questions about what your alliances should be and how to think about them. Realism is not a good way to do that. It's an, uh, sort of, uh, a context-dropping context approach, anti-philosophical and anti-moral, I think, at the deepest root. And it, it's, it's just really destructive of thinking. Uh, so, so I just wanted to put that on the table before we start wrapping up, because I think it's important. One last comment on this, one last comment. What did realists were telling us, some realists were telling us where Nixon went to Mao? That's a great move because 
China is uh, the lesser of two evils when it comes to the Soviet Union. What do really say now? Oh, China is now the big danger. Whereas 50 years ago, they say, no, China, we, the, the friend, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So it's, it's, as you said, it's short term. It's not even that it gives you this rational long-term strategy. So uh, it's, again, we come back to the moral is the practical and the, the impractical is the immoral in life as in uh, international relations at the end of the day. Excuse me. I, I think I mean is it, for people interested in the, the point you may mentioned about Nixon going to China, Ayn Rand has an in-depth uh, essay on that. Uh, I think it's called the Shanghai Gesture, which is really interesting. And one of the points she makes is, if you were going to do something like that, if, so for people who don't remember, so there was a long period of no real relationships with China. China was uh, it was much more communist than it is today. And we were in the grips of facing down the Soviet Union. And so Nixon made this spectacular diplomatic gesture. He flies out there, he, he has a face-to-face -face meeting, and this was supposed to be an opening so that we would side with China and against the Soviet Union. So this sort of strategic, and this is definitely a realist move uh, in, at the time. And people point to that, and there's a lot of discussion of what, what that meant, and this is taken as an example. Iran's analysis of that is, if you, were, if you really were convinced this was the right thing to do for your interests, if you really understood what your interests are, you would have to be a moral giant. Like you'd have to have real principles in order to navigate a relationship like that. Again, to do it in such a way that the Chinese don't get the better of you and that the Soviets don't get the better of you. And Nixon wasn't that moral giant. And it would take a lot of moral thinking. To, so it's not that you can't get into situations where you think, okay, well, we're in this crisis and we need to figure out how to protect ourselves and therefore maybe we need to, to approach this hostile country because it's, there's another one more hostile. You might be in positions like that. You wanna be, you wanna avoid those positions, but those kinds of things require not the abandonment of moral thinking, which is what realist counsels, but the exact opposite. You need to really be committed that, no, I'm doing this. I can justify it on moral terms I know who I'm dealing with, and I'm not going to pretend they're better than they are, which is what is essential to, to I think, the Nixon approach and the realist approach. So like you don't care who they are. They're just there, and you make a deal. I think this is a key point. And so I recommend people go read The Shanghai Gesture. It's available in the bound periodicals of Ayn Rand's uh, various periodicals. Uh, actually, I've got one here my, <laughs> right on my desk. Uh, and because her approach is exactly the opposite, it's taking morality as a fundamental need in life, as a fundamental driver in thinking about culture and politics, because she takes philosophy seriously. And I think that's a key difference where realism is, it doesn't at all see the value of philosophic thinking and in particular moral thinking. And I think that is a, a, a part of its appeal and it's sad that that's true, but it's also part of what leads it to, I think, bad advice and bad outcomes. Uh, in this context. So I'm, I'm hoping to write more about, to, to write about this particular case and uh, hopefully that piece comes out in due course and people will get another take on this whole realist Mearsheimer pers uh, viral perspective. Um, so we've got some questions now and we should say, we don't, if we don't get to all the questions, we'll be hopping into Clubhouse as soon as we end this live stream. So people want to join us there, we'll take some more questions. So let's see, I'm just going to glance at the questions to see if there are any worth taking on. Have you had a chance to look at them and any you want to take on? Not really. Uh, not that I don't want to take them on. I didn't, I can't, I can't oh, you don't to have find them. Okay. So yeah, they're not in my, in my document. So here's a question I think is good to, maybe we'll take this one and, and try to use it as a wrap up. So a question from YouTube chat. What about the argument that Ukraine isn't in direct US interests, even if Putin is immoral? I think that is true. I think Putin, it, both of those elements are true. Putin is immoral. He's, he's culpable for this war and all the costs that have flowed out of it. And it's also true that it's not in America's interest to go and fight on behalf of Ukraine. 
what is in our interest is to see Ukraine succeed and not become part of Russia and to see Putin fail. And there are things you can do short of, well short of war. <laughs> like it's not, the options in life are not do nothing or go to war. There's a whole range of things in the middle if you're uh, looking at this, there's a whole range of instruments and, and opportunities and diplomatic tools that you would do and that you would need to do. And the primary one, which I think we haven't done well and enough is to speak out and really talk about what's happening in moral terms, because that is a major part, this should have come up a little earlier, a major part of what is missing is, both in the realist view and just in the generic approach we have to foreign policy is, articulating in moral terms what our position is. So when, if you recall, I think Ben Baer and Agustina Vergara had a podcast not long ago where they were talking about the, the power of moral thinking in these contexts. And they, they, one of the examples they used was when Joe Biden said that Putin must go and he's an immoral leader and, and everyone regarded that as a, as a gaffe, as a, as a failure. And the reality is that's more of what you need. You need to be able to call out and speak in moral terms and evaluate what's going on because part of what you need to get is that leaders like Putin, they need moral cover and they, they, they flee from any, any confident moral evaluation of what they're doing. It really harms them. And if you did more of that, I think that would be crucial. So that's one of the things you would need to do as part of reaction to this situation. And I think there, there are reasons to support Ukraine uh, in, in its efforts. What those look like, I think there's, there's a, some optionality and some thing, room for debate, but I, I certainly don't think it's zero or everything. Uh, I think that's a mistake. But to, notice to that the people who will usually throw this argument, and which is of course a correct argument, they will refrain from giving their moral sanction to who is the right or who is the wrong. So again, I, I, want, I wonder whether they have some other motives when they, when they bring up that, yeah, of course, NATO shouldn't expand Ukraine because it has nothing to do with our strategic interest. Okay, this is the case, but where, where is your moral support then at least? Because even if this was at the, I would say, even if this was at the other side of the world, you do have a moral, in, you have an interest in the, in the aggressor to be defeated. Let me give you a simpler example. We in Greece, for example, we feel way more confident now that if Erdogan makes an aggressive mood, because he has seen how the world has stood up to Putin, Erdogan is going now to think twice. So you see, standing up for the good and condemning the evil is good and is always in your interest, irrespective of where it is happening. At the level, at least again, of the moral, of the moral sanction and of the moral support. Yeah. I, I've written a bit about this, and this came up in in the last twenty years with respect to the Islamist movement and the American response to it. So, it's definitely a critical part of any rational approach to foreign policy. So, let me just say thanks to all of those people who asked questions. If you can join us on Clubhouse, we'll try to take as many of them as we can. Thanks to people who have donated through Super Chat, we appreciate it. Um, there's one question here about realism. And I'll try to answer it briefly. Realism and pragmatism in philosophy, there may be some overlaps in, in their uh, genetic descent there. I don't know enough about that. I think the main, my understanding of realism, it has a number of origins. One of them is Hobbesian view of human nature. That's a common thread through the way realism looks at the world. And, uh, I think I can see ways in which pragmatism is an influence, but I don't know enough to say the, sort of the philosophical uh, origins of that. But there's definitely in terms of the way it manifests and the kind of advice it gives, you can say, yeah, this is, <laughs> it, whether it has its origins directly or indirectly or influenced partly or fully by pragmatism, it looks a lot like pragmatism and it, it fosters that kind of perspective. So I, I think that is definitely defensible. All right, well, thanks everyone for joining us. We're gonna move to Clubhouse in just a moment. Thanks, Nikos, uh, it's great chatting with you. Uh, you Thank can you. find us in the Ayn Rand Club if you jump into Clubhouse. Clubhouse is available on Android and iOS, and we hope to talk to you there. And if you enjoy this broadcast, you wanna help us reach more people, please like it, 
you can leave a comment. We'd love to hear from you. If you subscribe on YouTube, make sure to click the bell to get notifications. Give us a thumbs up if you, thumbs up or thumbs down, whatever your reaction is, we're good to get your, your comments and your feedback. And if you have questions or suggestions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach us through email. We read all the messages. We try to respond to many, and many of them are triggers for topics we do here on the podcast and sometimes articles in the journal itself. Reach us through newideal at einran.org. We look forward to hearing from you. And I can tell you a preview next week, we're planning to have an interview with uh, Matt Bateman, who is a philosopher and expert in education. He's gonna be interviewed by one of our colleagues, Sam Weaver, on understanding the principles of Montessori education, which is a fascinating topic. Matt's the person to hear on that. He's done a lot of thinking and he just has a great way of explaining things. I look forward to seeing that and I hope you will be here next time. Thanks again, and uh, we'll see you on Clubhouse, and if not, then next time here on the podcast. Goodbye. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.